if you could just start off by telling us a little bit about yourself and what it is you do. Thanks, Peter. Uh, nice to be here. So I am the head of strategy and operations for Google in the UK and Ireland. So that's what most traditional companies would call a combination of the chief operating officer and chief strategy officer. So we kind of plan the business and then hopefully operate the business to that plan. Uh, the, the title's pretty descriptive. Um, outside of that, I'm a dad. I've got two sons. Uh, one's 20, the other one's 17, and uh, a number of side interests that I'm sure we'll get into. Yeah, when you were offered the opportunity to join Google as strategy and operations lead, what was it about the company and your role within it that made it so compelling for you to join? I've always been a bit of a technology geek. I enjoy gadgets. I'm not a computer uh, computer scientist or an engineer, but uh, technology has always fascinated fascinated me. Probably a product of growing up in a pretty isolated place. You can probably tell from my accent. I'm a New Zealander, and uh, largely pre-internet. So everything that we kind of take for granted today, uh, for me, is still like magic, and I find it exciting, interesting, and I'm very passionate about it. So. I think thing number one is that uh, Google, uh, for me, uh, was and, and remains at the forefront of a rapidly evolving industry that's technology-centric. Two, I really like the people that I met there. And three, I had spent some time doing quite a different job and felt like uh, a bit of a change. I'd become... Uh, a little bit, a little comfortable, and I like to be um, uncomfortable because uh, it's a, a good sign that you're sort of learning and stretching yourself. So the role that presented itself was quite different in many ways, though still in the sort of technology sphere. And it sounded like a um, a great uh, a great fun role to do. Yeah, and you said you like the people at Google. What what kind of people are these? What are the kind of people that Google are looking to hire? And what would make a candidate stand out who's looking to apply for a job there, maybe? They're, they're quite varied. So I think, you know, I've, I've worked in a few places and, and certainly, you know, um, come across uh, many businesses, certainly during my time in consulting. And I would say that Google is one of the more diverse places that I've worked uh, in terms of the variety of backgrounds and experiences and sort of world lenses that uh, people bring. And there's typically, you know, when, when, you, when you talk to a Googler, you only need to ask two or three questions to find something remarkable about what they've done or who they are. And generally, that's not where they went to school or where they studied and what they studied or what they did before, but something much more personal about what it is that uh, really sort of defines who they are as a character, you know, whether it's a sporting uh, thing or uh, maybe they've got a, um, you know, an adventurous uh, um, proclivity and, and they've climbed mountains or something in the charity sector uh, there's always something, you know, I'll give you an example. I was talking to somebody the other day uh, who was interviewing for a role and I, you know, I asked her, you know, what um, what her, her background was. There was an interesting thing at the bottom of her CV. That's generally where the interesting stuff is uh, about sports. So she said, well, yeah, I was, uh, I, you know, I was a professional athlete for a while. I said, oh, what, what sport? She said, pole vaulting. Yeah. <laughs> 
And uh, turned out she had represented Germany in pole vaulting. You know, so that's just an example. Um, and probably connected to that, certainly what I look for and what, what most of my colleagues look for is not so much what you've done or where you've studied, it's who you are. And who you are is more commonly defined, at least in my experience, by the things that you pursue outside the sort of thing that we call our professional lives. Yeah, and one of your main roles is to manage these people, manage them as a team. And as a young student currently creating my own startup and hoping to build a team in the future, I'd love to know how you describe your management style and why effective team management is so important for the performance and well-being of a team. Well, good luck, good luck with your startup, uh, Peter. Um, well, I think every business at its heart is a people business, and the, and the um, you know, and, and the great sort of epiphany uh, for me is though, uh, though Google on the outside looks like a technology business, um, its real asset is the people. Uh, so, um, surrounding yourself with great people who know more than you or are, uh, you know have skills that you don't have and then getting out of their way and letting them do their job is one of the most important things you can do as you think about building a business. Uh, in terms of my own leadership style, probably I'm the wrong person to answer that question. You should really be asking it of my team. Uh, what they tell me is uh, three things. I'm uh, empowering, so I leave them alone and uh, you know give them the guidance when they need it, but uh, largely uh, you, know, tr uh, you know trust them to do their job. Um, you know, we hired them for a reason. You, you can't get in the way. You need to let them let them breathe and, and fly, so to speak. Second, I, you know, what you see is what you get. So I'm pretty authentic um, and not afraid to be vulnerable as a leader and say, I don't know. Um, you know, that happens quite frequently. Uh, and I think that's, uh, you know, that's a, a quality that uh, makes leaders relatable because none of us know all the answers and, there's, you know, we, we are creatures of imperfection. Uh, so I think just sort of wearing the heart on the sleeve, so to speak, and just being authentically who you are and not wearing, um, you know, some sort of facade or mask figuratively or literally. Uh, and third, I'd say I'm, I'm pretty playful, uh, which probably sounds a bit weird, but I think one of the most important things in nurturing an environment of innovation is to is to create the psychological safety uh, in its team uh, to play. And play in a professional context means take risks, experiment, you know, walk forward into the unknown, uh, pilot things, uh, and, and kind of sense and figure, figure things out. And a hallmark of doing that well and frequently is um, pretty frequent failure. Uh, and they may be big failures or they may be small failures, but um, you know, I, in my view, at least, that's a an important sign that you're doing things right, which probably, again, sounds a bit weird. Um, but uh, that's what innovation is all about. It's not sort of doing the stuff that you already know. Uh, it's exploring new ground. So I guess maybe on your leadership style, um, and it's obviously evolved from somewhere. You've had a really illustrious career even before Google. Where have these three tenets sort of evolved from and um, where do they come from? I'm probably just making catastrophic errors uh, on a very frequent basis over over time. It's sort of like parenthood, you know, leadership. You, you're not trained for it and can't be. Uh, you kind of just need to figure it out. So, um, you know, I I think you sort of um, 
refine your approach, your character, and get more comfortable with the passage of time. Uh, and usually uh, through doing things uh, in a way that is not effective. And certainly that's been been my path. You know, these are the, the, these uh, attributes, I guess, are the the product of um, having um, having refined the rough edges uh, over time. And of course, all of us sort of come with the the values and um, and characteristics that are instilled in us uh, as young people as well from our parents and our families. So I, I suppose it's a bit of that as well. Yeah, you seem to have a really um, interesting relationship with failure and errors um, compared to many of us uh, as young people here. I mean, what, what would you say on that? And maybe in a, a few examples of some of your biggest blunders uh, over your career and, and life, maybe, if you're willing to elaborate. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I guess that's right. I've had to sort of reconcile and make friends with failure because I'm just not that good um, at, uh, at the things that, that I try, at least to begin with. Um, some big, uh, some big blunders, boy. I mean, this this podcast is uh, is is less than four hours, so I'm not sure I'll be able to get through uh, all of them. But they're many and varied. In fact, I start every meeting with my team each week talking about my glorious failure uh, of of the week. And um, you know, an example which is I think probably on the sort of minor end of the scale, just as a weekly thing, is. You know, we had a discussion at our management group about a metric. There was a whole lot of noise and resistance to this metric. And I just didn't close that noise down fast enough. It sort of bled on a little bit and became a distraction. And, uh, you know, that's a, a failure in acting rapidly and allowing something to become, um, you know, distracting as a group. And, you know, focus is important and distraction is the opposite of that. So uh, that that's a sort of a, a minor example um, you know, recently, uh, any number of examples that my children could give as as parents uh, over time, and sort of refining the way that uh, that that uh, that that you deal with things as a parent. And you know, I think if there's any lesson there, it's to trust and talk to your children, certainly as they become teenagers as, as adults, and not you know uh, uh, not fool yourself into thinking you can control uh, them as much as you would like to, and as much as that that becomes a sort of frustration uh, over time. And then probably the biggest um, one that uh, felt like a failure certainly at the time is when I took the decision to go back to university after uh, six years as a, a lawyer. That was my first job. I was a court lawyer. Um, and I wanted to sort of retrain, if you like, and, and, and enter the world of business and um, literally sold the farm figuratively anyway, sold our house with, that we just bought, quit my job, didn't have anything to go to, and then moved uh, to the other hemisphere um, on the sort of wild bet that I'd be able to uh, uh, repurpose and retool and, and um, come out of that, uh, uh, you know, a new person from a professional point of view. And uh, that came to an abrupt halt about halfway through when we started applying for you know, summer internships, which typically divide the the two years, it's a two-year uh, MBA. I did an MBA. And uh, I think I got up to um, 32 rejections. I'd done 55 interviews and I was just getting no's everywhere I turned. I thought at the time, I thought, geez, you know, what have I done? Well, when I look at your career, 
I certainly don't see failure, and I'm sure anyone else looking at it doesn't. But what I do see is a lot of purpose. And and you talk about on your social media this idea of living deliberately. So what do you think is the role of purpose in pursuing a career? And what do you believe is the purpose of your own career? Well, it's rather an existential sort of and philosophical question. I think um, from a an inward perspective, you know, our, our careers, which we spend a large part of our lives pursuing, need to be fun in some way. They they need to be enjoyable. You need to be exercising a passion, uh, addressing the interests that you have in your life uh, in a in a in a meaningful way. That's a sort of me me um, sort of self centric way of answering the question. Uh, beyond that, and rather more meaningfully, I think we need to have an impact or feel that we have an impact. And that could be on a very grand scale, um, but it can be on a, um, a smaller scale. If we can affect just one other life in a positive way, uh, then we've kind of uh, fulfilled the purpose, haven't we? We've We've become part of a society and contributed uh, to humanity uh, in some way. So whether it's big or small, I think having an impact uh, in, 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 a, in a way that's quite outside yourself, you know, so uh, positive, positively in, influencing the lives and, um, uh, and enjoyment of others, um, for me, is, is probably the best answer to that question, which is a bit esoteric, I know. No, I think it's, a, it's very important to say and a, and a great answer and I was wondering with your time at Accenture you were constantly progressing your role and, and moving on to the next thing within the company and I was wondering when did you know it was time to make that leap and, and what was the driving factors behind that? I like to be comfortably uncomfortable comfortably uncomfortable so uh, discomfort I, I think is a signal as I said earlier that you're building in some way you're learning in some way you're stretching yourself so the answer is I tended to change roles where I'd become, when at the point that I'd become comfortable. It sort of become a routine. I could do the job with my eyes closed. Um, and I think that's a good sort of signal that your learning curve has somehow flattened. And we all like to be challenged, or at least most of us do. And um, that, that's been rule. And within Accenture, that cycle tended to be about two to three years. So although I was uh, with that, that company uh, 16 years in the end, I had eight roles during that time that were quite distinct, most of them in different countries, certainly with different cl clients and different teams. So the, uh, the role continued to um, evolve or, or change in quite radical ways over that time, and that was a good cycle. Um, at the end, you know, at a sort of rather more macro level, I felt my time at Accenture had flattened uh, or my learning curve had flattened. I, I felt like something completely different. And, and that's the point I jumped out and uh, came to Google. Yeah, and within Accenture and, and now obviously of Google, you said there's a massive blend of nationalities that you're working with going from different country to different country. Yeah, how was that experience of managing an eclectic team and also just bigger teams in general? Exhilarating. And, you know, I regard myself, I'm an immigrant. I've lived in the UK for 25 years. I am a British citizen uh, now, also a New Zealand citizen. But I regard myself as European 
first and foremost. And I think one of the most magical things about living in this part of the world is the tremendous uh, cultural diversity um, right on our doorstep. So I led teams in in, in Paris and in, uh, in Amsterdam. Uh, you know, I did business for a couple of years in Germany. Um, I worked in Italy for two and a half years. I worked in Russia, in Turkey, in Poland. I did some time in Finland and Sweden. I uh, had a long stay, uh, stint in the Middle East, in Saudi Arabia and the UAE. Um, worked in Spain. And all of these places have rich and diverse cultures and quite distinct ways of working. And I just find I find that absolutely fascinating and interesting. And of course, we need to adapt to that, right? We're we're the sort of foreign organism, so to speak, in these places. So the way that you convene, run, and drive change in Italy looks incredibly different um, to the way that you would do that in Germany or in Saudi Arabia. Uh, and aren't we lucky to have such diversity on our doorstep? Yeah, and on that, I want to talk about maybe the first time you left New Zealand and uh, that experience and when that was and how you felt and how you adapted. Because obviously you're very young, you're armed with experience at the moment of, of such moves. But how was it at the time? And what advice could you give? I was 28 when I left New Zealand. I'd had six years, uh, as I said, as a, a, a lawyer. I'd taken a bet, managed to implicate and drag along my girlfriend and, and now wife. Um, my girlfriend at the time, and uh, I felt the uh, the weight of the the world on my shoulders. You know, it, was, uh, it felt risky. Um, so it it wasn't an easy thing to do, but somehow exciting at the same time. And I remember sitting on the aircraft in Wellington, New Zealand, which is the capital, about to fly uh, at that time to Geneva in Switzerland, uh, and that's where my journey began. I uh, I had to learn a second language, so. Actually, before starting my MBA, I went to Switzerland, um, enrolled myself in the University of Geneva and, and studied French and Swiss history in French. Because, uh, uh, you know, I needed to figure out I was a mono, monolingual guy from New Zealand. I need to, needed to learn how to speak a second language. And it was, at the same time, exhilarating and intimidating and a little bit overwhelming. Uh, but I, I had the, the the sense of um, the sense of the excitement, I guess, of a of a journey, a new journey about to begin, and uh, it's it's been a hell of a ride, and it remains so. You know, I hope I have many many other inflection points like that. A quick ad break to talk about London tap water. Nellis, did you know one in five bladder cancer cases are caused by the tap water that we drink? I didn't, know, but this is why we're proud to have Water2 as sponsors of the podcast. Water2 is a new water company serving the water in aluminium cans and via home filters called pods, which plug in under your tap to bring you bottled water on tap. Amazing, right? Backed by years of research at University College London, the tech behind the water is over a thousand times more powerful than a common Brita filter. It's a totally groundbreaking company. We recently had the founder, Charles, on the podcast, and we're both regular drinkers of Water2. It's something we really live by. It's better for you, safer for you, and better for the environment. So to get your own pod, head over to water2.com. Health starts with hydration, and you deserve more than just tap water. 
how do you feel that you're able to change an environment that you that you enter and when you enter it when does it when does a penny drop as to how uh to do that for example at google since 2017 how have you felt that you've made an impact there yourself or at least tried to well i suppose the the essence of impact for me is manifests in change of some sort whether that's changing the way that uh, or the usefulness of our products in the marketplace uh, the relevance and um, and um, you know return on investment I suppose for uh, companies being able to reach their customers you know which uh, is obviously the advertising industry that's a big part of Google's business um, or um, impacting the the way things are done at a rather more sort of rudimentary operational uh, operational way you know Charles Darwin is often misquoted as saying that the it's the strongest that survived that's a that's not accurate what he actually said uh, is that it's not the strongest that survived but the uh, those who are most uh, most adaptable, or something like I'm paraphrasing, but it's about adaptability. And I think in a world of constant change, really that's the only constant, uh, the fact that there's change happening, um, and that change is happening more ra more radically in terms of the, the, uh, the magnitude, as well, well as more frequently. By definition, there's no such thing as enduring mastery. Uh, you know, when you get good at something, it changes under your feet. Uh, so um, this idea of agility, adapting to new stuff, figuring it out, experimenting and, and, and kind of finding a path is a constant. And I would like to think uh, that that's uh, a contribution I make in some small way. Uh, to our plight, uh, both with our teams and people that we work with and the um, the products and and, uh, and and customers that we serve. The audience of this podcast is mainly students. And if we could just go back to your time in education and take some wisdom from that. Um, you initially graduated in law, finance and economics. I'd like to know why you decided to maybe study such a, a range of subjects and, and why those ones, how you thought that would help or hinder your career. Um, and then also just going forward towards your MBA, how did you find the difference in going back to, back to study then? And, you know, you graduated top of your school in, in that MBA at London Business School. What fueled your drive to, to still succeed in your studies and, and how do you reflect on that whole experience? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think you're probably looking for some sort of um, oracle-like uh, um you know, guidance here. Uh, the reality is I studied finance and economics because I couldn't be bothered reading the um, massive, at the time, paper-based course guide at university. But my friend Mike had looked at it and he figured out that commerce and uh, law looked good. So I just did that degree because my mate Mike was doing it. And if it was good enough for Mike, it was good enough for me. There wasn't really any <laughs> anything more deep uh, about it. And um, on that particular degree, we either turned left and became an accountant or we turned right and became a lawyer. And I uh, went the legal route and, you know, that was interesting, fulfilling. And as it turned out, rather by accident than design, you know, having those skills uh, were uh, has been important. It's been, it's been an important sort of building block and it's probably not a day, 
that goes by that I don't use my legal training in, in some way or my legal experience. Uh, and then the MBA was really a vehicle, you know, rather than a, a destination. It was a vehicle to achieve what I wanted to um, create as an inflection point um, to pass from uh, a, the profession of law into somehow business, whatever that meant. And I didn't really know what it meant at the time, but I, I knew I was interested in, uh, you know, this was the dawn of the internet. This was 98, right? Uh, Google was born in a garage in 98. Uh, but I could see the, um, uh, you know, I could see that something important was happening. Uh, and I was very drawn to the sort of uh, creative discipline of kind of figuring that out and becoming part of uh, a cycle of innovation in business. Um, so uh, in, in both cases, I'm, I'm afraid the, uh, the the thinking behind uh, the study uh, wasn't either deep or meaningful. It was more a sort of means to an end. Um, and in the case of the undergraduate degree, falling forward because my friend Mike had decided that was a good thing to do and I was happy to follow his his judgment. So it's been um, a, a bit of a stochastic walk. And you, you asked me, you, you talked about... Um, graduating top of the school at, at London Business School, I kind of, um, I figured out, as I referenced earlier, when I started getting dings left, right and centre, that I had nothing uh, to distinguish me. You know, I was from this bizarre, isolated place at the bottom of the world. I'd worked for a company that no one had ever heard of. I was in a profession that was sort of rather orthogonal or... Um, you know, not obvious as, as something that would be useful in business. And I'd been to schools and universities that no one had heard of. So the only thing within my control at that, at that time was to put my head down and think, well, I'm in control of how hard I work. I better get my, get my head down and get some good marks because if you can get yourself onto the dean's list, which is the top 10 in the school, uh, then you you start getting uh, interviews and start distinguishing yourself just on on that uh, on that alone. So that was within my control, and I sort of decided I'd better better get busy. Uh, and uh, you know, obviously, I sort of um, you know worked a bit harder than some of my colleagues who were having a, a good social time uh, uh, at, at the time. So that was the that was the background to that. Yeah, for me, that this is exactly why I do this podcast. You know, is you see these people, you know, who just seem like they have the most amazing career and have always had it figured out, and and it's very, I find it very humanising and, and you know inspiring to show that you know it's they've had the exact same thoughts as you, and you know it's not always easy, and I really appreciate you sort of opening up about that. Um, I want to ask maybe about some of the mentors that have helped you guide you through this whole experience and you know who they are why they were so important to you and also you do a lot of mentoring yourself now why do you feel so inclined to give back to young people so uh, in terms of the mentors that have influenced me I think you know we're, we're all students of life and in life and the best way to learn is to is to look at what others are doing and sort of seek wisdom um, from them and I suppose the first mentor I had was my grandfather he was a doctor, but um, kind of a bit of a mad scientist. Uh, he, he liked nothing more than going down into his shed that was essentially full of junk and making stuff, whether it was mechanical, like trolleys and, and things like that, or electronic circuits and, and stuff like that. And I found that 
to be um, an interesting pastime. It's been hours and hours with my grandfather in the shed and sort of got that sense of excitement and uh, in kind of um, figuring something out and building something. Um, I, I then worked with a, a guy at, um, in the law who was just very empowering. He, he trusted me deeply. He gave me more rope than I felt I could handle. Uh, certainly enough to hang myself. And I found that it, uh, in the same breath, scary and empowering and interesting um, and motivating. So, um, you know, that, that I suppose is something I've learned to do uh, with the people that I work with as well. Uh, and um, uh, and another actually, um, subsequently at, at Accenture sort of gave me the same oxygen to breathe and at, a, at a stage that was... Um, that was on its face sort of too early in many ways. So these, these sort of slightly risky and uncomfortable um, situations uh, are things that mentors can provide um, both in a professional context and, and also in a, uh, in a personal uh, context. And I do a lot of mentoring today, but it's never one way. I, I regard mentorship as a two-way street, and I learn at least as much from people that I mentor as I hope they, they they do for me. There's always a um, there's always a sort of two-way dialogue there. And I try to meet two or three new people every week and um, in some cases, you know, end up in uh, rather sort of uh, uh, continuous uh, contact with them. Yeah. And if mentoring is one thing that sort of keeps you working as hard as you do and, and you know, guides you for your career, I think another thing you sort of attribute to your, to your success and being able to continuously work hard is what you do outside of it so you, you call it active relaxing and I, I kind of want to know is what you mean about that and then also maybe dive into some of the hobbies you have outside of work I, we, I see you do a lot on YouTube um, you, you're a pilot you have a, a record label and, and how do you maintain all these passions outside of work with such a busy work schedule uh, I schedule it and I've got a very tolerant wife and, uh, and, and children um, is the short answer. I think there's no job that fully satisfies all of our interests. So for me, this is a, this is a way of exploring interests uh, fully. Um, those that are, are not satisfied um, you know, in the workplace, in my day job, so to speak. So um, in the case of the YouTube channel, for example, it's called Coffee, Eggs and Inspiration. I'll pause for a moment while your listeners look it up. Please subscribe and smash that like button so that you're, uh, you're, you're or that notification button so you're notified. Um, I'm the world's smallest YouTuber. Um, but I, I just love it because it's a sort of creative outlet. It's, you know, I can't sing. I can't dance. At least my wife tells me I can't. Um, I can't play a musical instrument well, I can't paint, um, but I just love the creative process and, and, and filming content and, and in particularly editing content is something I've found to be really fulfilling. You know, it, it, it's an expression of creativity um, that uh, in the narrow window where, I, where I'm able to, I can, I can kind of do. And it's also a great way of of um, learning our products, you know, Google's products, uh, YouTube in this case, um, as a creator would and making all the mistakes. And I do a lot of 
you know, representing the company in the in the public domain. And I think, you know, there's a certain credibility of standing in front of an audience and saying, you know, if you've got a smartphone and an idea, you can create a channel and reach a global audience. I know because I've done it. Um, right? You're talking from really from the from the heart. So this is a sort of dual thing. Flying, I've always been fascinated by play by planes. Uh, it took me until my late 40s uh, to get round to it. And I, I got my pilot's license about seven years ago. And I just love flying because when you're flying, I, you know, I've got a tiny, tiny uh, plane, um, think uh, white van of the sky, 40 something years old and uh, very mechanical. And you hand fly it, right? There's no autopilot, there's no computers or anything like that. And when you're uh, flying, you know, you really need to be in the moment, right? You need to be uh, careful that you're not bumping into a mountain or into another aircraft. Uh, your, your mind is totally there. You have to be in that zone. And that's a great way of relaxing, uh, ironically, because you can't think about anything else, you know, the pressures of work or everything that's happening outside of that. And it's a cool way of, you know, seeing the country in a, in a, uh, from a slightly different um angle and and likewise for um, my business interests you know i've got four companies of my own i'm an angel investor and the golden thread there is is just the excitement of meeting people and working with them in some way whether as an investor or more directly as a company owner and founder uh, on uh, ideas that uh, potentially um, you know move us forward in some way in, a, in an innovative way, disruptive way, and I just find that really interesting and fascinating. So these are all sort of interests that I love to explore, and um, you need to be disciplined and, and schedule time and make time for it, and you certainly need a patient family, which I'm lucky to have. And a lot to unpack there in terms of your hobbies, and yeah, the YouTube channel is fantastic, by the way, everyone check that out. Um, <clears throat> on the investing side, however, many of our audience will be interested in how you got into that and and sort of the things, the lessons you've learned from that and how to how you've applied that to your work at Google too. I mean, could you elaborate a bit on that experience, um, which is obviously ongoing, um, and how it's he helping you and benefiting you? Yeah, sure. So most investors, angel investors, just an individual who invests their own money, you know, you've got VCs, venture capital companies that take funds from a pool of people, put them together and invest, you've got private equity, they tend to buy sort of more mature companies. Uh, the, the common thread is that you're investing as much, if not more, in the team as you are in the idea. Uh, the idea needs to be a good idea, right? But that, that's sort of table stakes. And, you know, the, the only thing certain about that idea is that it's wrong in some dimensions and will need to evolve and change. Um, yeah, it's like, uh, who was it? Was it Muhammad Ali? Or, Mike Tyson, he said, everyone's got a plan until they're punched in the face. And being a founder is a little bit like that, right? You've got this beautifully uh, crafted invested deck and, and business plan, and then look at all this, this target addressable market and how massively I can scale. And almost as soon as you've um, put the uh, final full stop in that investor deck, you figure out it's wrong. Uh, so the team uh, is the most important ingredient of any startup. Uh, they need to have conviction and perseverance with their idea, but not to the point of dogmatism where they don't uh, detect uh, adjustments that need to be made. Um, and every startup will go through many pivots. Um, 
in in their in their journey. So they they need to have conviction and confidence and perseverance, and, and not sort of just get put off at the first pass, but also not have the have the humility to change direction and adjust their course where they need to. Uh, they need to be adaptable. Remember that Darwin quote. They need to be adaptable because markets shift. Even if the idea is good on day one, it won't be good in two years. You know, the market will change. The consumer behaviour will change. The technology is probably going to change, uh, etc. So that uh, adaptability uh, is uh, is very important. Um, and they kind of need to have the courage and bravery um, to. Take risks, right? That is the, you know, entrepreneurship is a French word. It's about risk taking, and um, you know, great entrepreneurs see something, and get drawn to it. But then, most importantly, what distinguishes them is that they take the next step and they do it, knowing that they probably don't have everything right, but excited by the prospect of finding out. On your website, it mentions that your best education, your best experience was actually in a bar job when you were younger. A lot of us have jobs as such, and maybe we seek no value. We just sort of see the clock ticking um, and wait for at the end of our shift. How can people take value from that and get through that process as you have? Um, and maybe if you want to elaborate maybe on, on what you said on your website about how it being such a valuable experience. Yeah, sure. So uh, the dirty secret is that education does not happen in a classroom. Uh, it happens outside of that. Uh, now, maybe there's some sort of basic tools that, and, and skills that you develop in a classroom, that you, but the, the real learning happens outside. And working in a bar, was, uh, when I was at uh, university doing my undergraduate degree, it's a five-year degree, I worked 35 hours a week uh, in a job at night, and I studied during the day. I didn't have support uh, you know, from um, financial support. My family didn't pay for me to go to university. Um, so I needed to find a way of doing that myself. And and I'm glad to have had that experience because working in a bar teaches you a number of things. It teaches you first and foremost people skills. You're dealing with a lot of different people uh, in different states of sobriety and in different, uh, you know, in, in different personalities. Uh, so I think people skills is, is one thing. It teaches you process, right? If you work in a restaurant or a bar, you will quickly come to understand uh, how to design a supply chain uh, in a sort of miniature way. You know, how to make, um, you know, how do you do uh, 300 cappuccinos uh, a, an hour, um, you know, and, and, and double your output? Well, you need to have a system, right, in place, and you, you end up designing that system. So it's a great sort of, uh, teacher in, in in that respect, and you learn um, the humility of being in service um, of others as well, which is a great uh, attribute for any um, profession. So I'm a great believer in in uh, in, in, in the uh, the learning that happens outside the classroom. These uh, schools and universities we have are great, and I would never diminish their importance. But don't be fooled into thinking that you really. Um, uh, you know, you're getting your your uh, mainstream education there. You're not. Yeah, and I guess your philosophy on education inspired you to write a book, Playful Curiosity. What what was the motivation behind such an endeavour? And maybe if you can summarise um, the premise behind it and, and and its philosophy. Sure. So I felt... 
well, as, as the sort of introduction to the book says, I think education is broken. Now, let me be clear about what I mean there. It's a, it's a comment on the system, uh, not on the people in that system. I think teaching is the most noble of profession. They are our heroes. Uh, I worship somebody who's a good teacher because I don't, I don't think there's any higher calling, actually. Um, and we've got some brilliant and beautiful people in that profession who do amazing things, but they do it inside a system which I think is broken. Uh, it's certainly outdated, right? Our education system, as it currently uh, as it currently stands, and I think this is true in most parts of the world, with a few exceptions, was designed during the Industrial Revolution, where what was important. Um, is to have production lines where everyone had a sort of minimum level of numeracy and literacy. You know, that made factories work really well. It uh, enabled offices to function uh, in, the, uh, in the time. Um, that was a long, long time ago, right? And if you think about the premise um, of education, we um, push information largely, uh, which is to say things that other people have found out uh, we ask students to commit those things to memory, and then we put them through an instrument of torture called an examination, which is really a test of two things, recall and exam technique. It doesn't really test anything else um, at, a, at a very deep level. Um, yet we live in this environment of constant change where, by definition, you start with what you don't know. You know, that's what real life is, is all about. You start with what you don't know, and you figure it out through experimentation. It's, it's actually the opposite of examination, right? Where you start with something that you know and you're tested on your recall of it. Um, so I don't think it's a very good simulation of the skill sets uh, that are actually needed in the real world. And I see this in, in you know, I do a lot of recruitment in my job at Google and, and the people, you know, some of the most remarkable people um, that we hire, bring with them skills from what I call the university of life. You know, they've had an incredibly hard upbringing in a tough and poor neighbourhood and have had to sort of um, find their way through uh, that grind or they've had a, um, a, a tragic event in their life that they've had to recover from or they've pursued things uh, largely outside work. They've taught themselves how to code. They've built their own app. Um, you know, uh, we've got 100 apprentices who have come straight from high school in Google in London right now. And they're the most uh, remarkable group of people um, who have a lot of these attributes. So my observation is that what is important and valuable in the workplace is it, it, uh, typically not what you leave or what is imparted through either the school system or the university system. And uh, the premise of the book is to provoke a conversation uh, about this, uh, in order to um, in, in order to somehow sort of contribute to change, uh, to changing it. And I think there's uh, you know there's a few things. Playful curiosity is a sort of descriptive title. There's a few things that I feel are needed. First of all, you need to start with somebody's passion, their curiosity. You know, the Montessori or, or Steiner systems of education are good at this. They they're play-based um, education systems where you're starting with somebody's curiosity and allowing them to sort of experiment and find out. That, I think, is a better simulation of what happens in the real world. It's playful, 
in the sense that um, failure is a necessary part of the process. It's celebrated and rewarded, not penalised through the punitive mechanism of grading in examination, right? That's the opposite uh, of, of what we need. And I think the, the final part is experimentation, uh, you know, real-life experience, hands-on, outside a classroom. Don't teach somebody about calculus using a whiteboard. Take them to a racetrack and ask them to figure out uh, the, the, the uh, acceleration or uh, sl slowing down gradient of a, of a race car. You know, that's a, that's a real-world application of this fascinating mathematical concept. So um, my small contribution, I guess, now you don't need to read the book, by the way. Uh, <laughs> the book is only a 15-minute read uh, for those of you who are, are interested. But that's my point of view, and um, it's a point of view that's sort of built as a person who recruits people, who sees what's valuable in the workplace, and as a parent who's had two kids go through the system. Yeah, I completely agree with everything you just said, and, and I've often felt unenthused and sort of confused within the education system and and just sort of making that that leap from university to a career in the office space I, I feel slightly unprepared and I was wondering what what do you think for students and, and young people now like you know if this is the education system what kind of things can they be doing to prepare themselves for the, the workforce better you know things to get them inspired and, and passionate about what they might be able to do in the future and finally what uh, industries do you think, as somebody who's in a tech company right now, and you know you do a lot in sustainability and everything like that, what is the up and coming industries that people should be looking out for? So two parts to that question. So first of all, what my advice is to play, um, you know, figure out what you're interested in, and go play with it. Kind of figure it out, right? If it's content creation, start a podcast as you guys have, uh, or a YouTube channel or a TikTok channel or whatever you're, you're drawn to, or, um, you know, start filming your gaming and, uh, and put it on Twitch. Uh, you know, that's a, that's a creative uh, discipline. If you're interested in a business, um, start one. Don't talk about it. Just start one, right? It's super easy to do. It's 30 quid to register a company. Um, you know, you can uh, create a website in about 45 minutes using Squarespace or Wix. Uh, and, uh, and just play with it, make the mistakes and sort of celebrate those mistakes when you make them um, and, and many other examples. So the, the message there is to, to play. Think about what draws you, what excites you and, uh, and play with it. You know, it's surprising where that will, that will take you and at, at the very minimum, it will give you something to talk about that's really a, a source of passion, uh, a source of passion for you. Um, and in terms of the... Uh, emerging industries or, or, or sort of areas. I did a post on this recently on LinkedIn. Um, you know, I think there's, I'm a technology geek, so I, I, I come with that bias. So this won't interest the, uh, the uh, violinists and, um, and the painters amongst your audience, but um, I'm fascinated uh, by a few emerging trends. You mentioned uh, sustainability, so let me start there. I mean, it's a, an existential challenge that we have as humanity. And, uh, you know, there's a, uh, an emerging sector, which is, which is sort of around climate tech. It's carbon sequestration, carbon storage. Um, it, it's around uh, alternative energy sources and energy security. That's sort of come to the fore in rather tragic circumstances 
recently, whether that be battery or hydrogen or other forms of um, alternative greener energy um, and um, and many other uh, sort of elements, this hardware components. So how do you equip um, our power grids to cope with sustainable energy and, and much more unpredictable patterns of usage? Uh, so green tech, I think, is a, a really interesting thing. Quantum computing is definitely the next generation of um, the uh, physical or physics uh, side of, uh, of computing. You know, we're still, even with the most powerful computers in the world, operating essentially with ones and zeros. So these little transistors that work in a binary way. And the idea of quantum computing is to detach from that sort of binary one or zero um, and take advantage of the quantum physical uh, principle of superposition, where you can be a one and zero or any kind of combination of those. And that, it turns out, vastly increases the processing power uh, of computers. We had a, uh, an event that we declared uh, in, I think it was October 2019, with a quantum com computer called Sycamore, uh, with just, um, I think it was 56 qubits. These are the, the superposition sort of uh, units that, that make them up. That solved a mathematical equation in 200 seconds that would have taken the most powerful supercomputer available today 10,000 years. So that gives you a sort of sense of the the step change. It'll take some time uh, to uh, for, for, for quantum computers to be stable and uh, reliable enough to, to use in a practical way, uh, but it's definitely a sort of a, a quantum leap, forgive the pun. Artificial intelligence, you know, obviously that's um, in the public eye at the moment in a, in a big way. The computer science has been around for a long time. Uh, and um, it's in the public consciousness only uh, recently because, you know, we've got these little sort of beta tools that are being um, uh, released. But, the uh, you know, that style of uh, computing is, uh, has been around for some time. And I think computers just have this ability to spot patterns in data that uh, the human eye uh, can't and won't. And the most exciting applications, in my opinion, are in the medical field. Uh, where, you know, uh, AI can be used, for example, to spot early signs of um, uh, malignant um, uh, tissue in, 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 uh, in female breasts or to spot early signs of macular degeneration uh, or um, diabetic retinopathy and stop people from going blind. Um, you know, these are very meaningful. And more recently, protein folding, these 200 million basic building blocks of life whose shape is as important as their, their chemistry and amino acids uh, to defining uh, hitherto unsolved um, incurable diseases, right? So I think there's some really exciting um, applications there. I could go on, but I'll, I'll leave it at that. Yeah, and, and I really appreciate all the time you've given and how much detail you've gone into everything. And, you know, I know you're a busy man and you've got a lot to get back to. So I just want to ask one final question. Um, and we are, we like to ask all of our guests, uh, and it's about your idea of success and how that may have changed from the beginning of your career when you're in New Zealand, you're doing law, you, you've just graduated, you know, to, to now as a manager director at Google. What is your, your idea of success and how has it changed? I think the enthusiasm of youth tends to fuel this unbridled ambition and, and you tend to reference that against others. If I only I could be like, you know, fill in the gap or reach these heights or do what they've done. 
And I think probably to some extent that's natural. It's certainly natural in the day of social media, right? It's uh, where we live in this sort of rather skewed to artificial um, sense of sort of comparison. Um, the, the reality is that you're only ever uh, going to compare yourself against yourself, right? Um, you're, the definition of progress is that you're um, more skillful and uh, better and, and wiser next week than you are this week. So um, I think that's probably one thing that's changed. Uh, you know, I don't have this sort of FOMO sense. I'm, I'm happy in, in my own skin and, um, you know, uh, happy to, to be um, progressing in some way and always learning in some way, a perpetual student, uh, if you like. I think the idea of making impact probably grows over time. I'm not saying it sort of doesn't uh, exist when you're, when you're younger. I think, you know, I admire deeply the, the Gen Z and millennial generations because they sort of have their ducks in a row in a, in a way that, uh, you know, my generation probably didn't so much. It's a less superficial generation, a more sort of deeply thoughtful generation in so many ways. But making an impact, I think, is incredibly important. Uh, and I think the final thing I'd say is that work's just work. It doesn't really matter at the end of the day. It's just something that you do um, to amuse yourself. And it should amuse you. You know, It should be playful and fun. But um, there are many, many important facets of life and achieving balance where you're able to express and address your interests across that full spectrum is what life's all about. So keep it in perspective and uh, this thing that we call work that feels really, really important at the time isn't really. Well, thank you very much, Craig, for the last um, hour or so. It's been really insightful. I think our audience will take so much. Um, and yeah, Pete, you got anything to say? Thanks so much, Craig. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for the time, guys.